Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, and welcome to the show. This week's episode is going to be very interesting, I hope, uh, because we are going to talk about something that, while not broad, may not broadly appeal to everyone, I believe that there will be something for everyone in this episode. And it's a little different than what I normally do, uh, but this one is designed to kind of stretch your brain a little bit, get you thinking uh, about, about things that you may not have pondered or considered before. And what is today's topic? Well, we are going to talk about the philosophical elements, the philosophical teachings that are found in The Simpsons. And we are talking to an expert, a man who has put together a college-level course on this exact subject, Dr. John Donaldson of the University of Glasgow, Scotland. And, you know, this is a, this is a really cool kind of... Um, combination of different things in my life because I've loved The Simpsons since its inception. You know, this is 30 years. Uh, there, there are people who are alive today who were born after The Simpsons was on who have never known a life before The Simpsons. And that's kind of a crazy thought. You know, th that's how culturally significant this show is. And I remember when, when I was a kid watching this, one of the things that always really blew my mind about it was it was the first television show, and cartoon for that matter, that, would, that, that hid tons of little Easter eggs inside of the episode. You know, I remember I, I talked about um, the Mr. Pushout, Mr. Burns in my episode with Andrew Farrago. Um, about how I remember watching that, that episode over and over and over again, trying to figure out the mystery, which ultimately was kind of unsolvable with the clues that you got. So shame on you, Simpsons, for that. Uh, but you've made up for it in the 24 years since. And, and I remember thinking about all these little hidden elements, and it was really the first time where they had freeze frame um, kind of jokes. So they'd have like a list of things you have to freeze frame it to get all the jokes. Um, you know, little things that would re refer back to previous episodes. And I love this about The Simpsons. And, and I think that, you know, what we're talking about today is really the, the, the hidden lessons, you know, The Simpsons' ability to take, you know, seemingly extraordinarily complex topics and really boil them down not only to their fundamental elements, but to apply them in a story that is completely relatable and digestible uh, in mass form, en masse. Uh, and, and I think that that is really the key to the brilliance and longevity of The Simpsons. So that's what we're going to get into. Uh, you know, simple topics like that. Very, uh, you know, easy to do. That's what we do here in Fascinating Nouns. So before we get into this, before you continue, make sure your brain is rested because we're going to give it a workout today. Uh, so Dr. Donaldson, thanks for being on the show today. Let me ask you the really important questions here. Do you like Dr. Donaldson? Do you like John? Do you like Johnny Donnie? Do you like the Donald son? What do you like? <laughs> uh, you, you just told me John. That's fine. John? Okay. Well, John, so you, you kind of hit, it looks like you and I are kind of simpatico with a lot of uh, the things that we like. 
Um, but before we get into that, how, how did you get into becoming a professional thinker? Um, completely by accident. Um, I decided around the age of, of 20 uh, to um, try and do something useful with my life. And so I went to university and um, I, I didn't plan to become a professional philosopher. I didn't even really plan to study philosophy. Um, my plan was to study English literature, get involved in student journalism and try and become a journalist. Um, that was my plan. And then in the way the degree system works in Scotland is that if you if you do, a, a, a broadly speaking, an arts degree for the first two years, you have to take other subjects alongside the, the main subject that, that you, you ought to study. And so I, I had to pick three subjects for the first two years. And I, I um, without really knowing what was involved at all, one of the subjects I chose was philosophy. And then slowly I just fell in love with philosophy and out of love with other subjects and, and, and here I am all these years later. <laughs> but it, but it, it was completely by accident. Wow, that's funny. Well, you know, it's, you know, and I, and I mean no disrespect by this, but at least here in the States, it's funny because anyone with who majors in philosophy uh, tends to get the chagrin of their parents. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you've been very successful at it, which congratulations on that. Not a lot of people do. That's a feat in and of itself in a way. Well, I, how successful I've been, I suppose, is open to debate. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not tenured, which, which is, which is oh. usually the sort of holy grail. Of, oh, well, this uh, interview's over. <laughs> um, well, for some academics, their life is over if, if they don't. Um, although, I, you know, I'm working on it. Hopefully, I'll get something like that. Um, the, the system's a little different in the UK from the US. Well, I think um, that this interview is probably going to be a first step in the right direction for tenure. If you need me to talk to anybody, just let me know. <laughs> I'm happy to make I, that I, call for you. I, I'm happy to know that, that, that you're a favor I can call upon. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny because one of the things you're known for, amongst other things, uh, and, and by the way, I looked at the, your course offerings, and I would love to have you, would have had, loved to have had you in uh, my university because I would have taken every one of your classes. Um, but, you know, with The Simpsons specifically, it's kind of cool because I didn't realize this until I started digging into this, but you're, you know, you're in good company with professional philosophers. Uh, in that Matt Groening studied philosophy. I had no idea. That, that's correct, yeah. Um, lo- lots and lots of people that you might not expect study, who have studied philosophy study philosophy. And, and, and that's one of the great things, I think, about a philosophy degree is that it does um, not really close any doors in terms of the possible careers you can go into. And, and, and those that try to sell philosophy as, as a degree often, often cite that fact and, and try to explain it by saying that a philosophy degree gives you the most transferable of all skills, huh. um, skills that are applicable in any environment. And, and, and uh, that includes things like the ability to think clearly and rationally about any subject matter. You know, if you can, if you can engage with, with difficult philosophical ideas and think clearly about them and reason, reason about them, then thinking about ideas in business or, 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 or in the arts or in any other walk, walk of life is relatively straightforward and, and so I think in many ways a philosophy degree is, is, is arguably the ideal sort of general degree, a degree that just gives you a general education that, that prepares you for, for, for life in general. Well, given the, some of the decisions that get made and the people I've run into, uh, at least in the U.S. alone, I think um, a philosophy degree should be mandatory um, federally. Um, I'd like to put in for that, and I think you make a good argument for that. I like that. The ability to think rationally and clearly is a, a much-needed skill. I think so. I, 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 I certainly think they, they should teach uh, logic and reasoning um, in schools um, to the same extent that things like English and mathematics get taught. Yeah. Um, there, there's a really good argument, I think, for, 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 for making that as central to 
curricula. Um, and indeed, I'm not sure about the USA, but in the UK, there's a, a, a campaign for what's called the fourth R. So we, we have this sort of phrase in the UK, which, which is that the, the, the three R's of education, um, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, and people want to add the fourth R to that, reasoning. Um, and and I, I think I think that's that's a good idea because it is a re- really uh, significant gap I think in the general educational pr- provision that, that we give to people, um, the ability to, to to reason, the ability to to avoid at least a bit better the the systematic cognitive biases and, and problems that, that we know um, human beings as a species um, are susceptible to. That's true. I have lots of cognitive biases. That's for sure. Well, we all do. I mean, if you're human, you have them. That's right. The way we're built. I, also, I also love that phrase. It's a pretty fun phrase to say. You know, so uh, it, speaking of philosophy, in preparation for this, I had to dig deep, John. I had to go deep into the past because I had to go back to my um, days. I, I've always loved The Simpsons. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been a huge fan. I still watch the show. But as I was researching some of this, I had to go back and rewatch episodes. Uh, and I, I want to thank you for um, kind of, in a weird way, forcing me to do that because I laughed hysterically at some old episodes and had a lot of fun. But also, Philosophy 101, man, I had a really interesting time. So when I was in school, I took Philosophy 101. I had one of the strangest philosoph- uh, philosophy teachers. He kind of had like the hair of Einstein and he had these neon argyle socks that he would wear every day. And the strangest part of his ensemble, because he'd wear a suit, is he had um, Asics. I don't know if you guys have Asics in the UK, but they're like a running shoe. But these were Asics yeah, yeah. wrestling shoes, which are very specific shoes because they don't have a sole. Um, like they don't have any sole at all. And this was the professor, and he had to be like in his 60s or whatever. Um, a very odd guy. Uh, is this typical? Is this? Do you wear stuff like this, or is this kind of atypical, or, or do you know kind of characters like this? So I think it varies an awful lot from from country to country and from university to university. Often you get sort of um, the, the the character of of uh, philosophy departments, and indeed the character of any kind of academic department will will um, be partly determined by the the. The country it's located in, by the city it's located in, by the university it's located in, and, and, and just by the sort of history of people who have tended to be employed in that department. Um, so I, I, my main experience of, of philosophy departments is, is the department at Glasgow, which is very, um, in some ways, very Glaswegian, even though it's got lots of people in it from who are from outside of Glasgow, um, in, in the sense that it's quite down to earth. Um, it has quite a sort of egalitarian ethos. Um, you know, titles don't get used. It, 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 it has a, um, it's a very social department. Um, people interact a lot with each other socially and, and um, we'll go to the pub together and things like that. And, and so we, we, we don't really have any sort of stereotypically um, weird <laughs> philosophical characters. Oh, um, man. Having, having said that, I think to study philosophy, uh, you either need to be a bit weird or to study of it makes you a bit weird. So, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but perhaps I'm blind to the to the weirdnesses that, that we all have. But I, th- I think I think uh, for the most part, um, uh, you you know, these days philosophy has been professionalized to a degree that that um, people often have quite clear divisions in their life between their professional philosophizing and and uh, their their home life and their social life, and, and and that can be a very clear division for them. So so they can be quote unquote a normal person. 
it just so happens that their day job is thinking about these deep and difficult ideas. Right. No, that's very true. And while I didn't graduate with a philosophy degree, nor do I have Asics neon wrestling shoes, they do call me the analytical mastermind. So you, you may be a, you may have bit off more than you can chew with this conversation, but I feel like you can handle your own. Um, so let, let's get let's get into this because I really enjoyed kind of learning about the hidden, it's almost like a hidden world in The Simpsons, because there's a lot of philosophy, a lot of ways to really take a look at the characters. And I was reading this, um, I was reading a Guardian article that made this really great um, comparison, or kind of this, uh, it, it was really like a good point that that the, the nature of a cartoon is essentially that it's made up of caricatures. And those caricatures make it easier to kind of look at philosophical ideas because if you take like a story like you know even the classic literature all the characters in those stories are very specific and have a very specific you know uh, makeup of of uh, motivations of situations of background but with the, with the simpsons they're all caricatures essentially uh, they borderline on stereotypes and i know you've taken a lot of heat for or been the main guy that has to answer why there's so many stereotypes in the simpsons but do you think that that kind of helped when developing this course that you could kind of use any you kind of pick and choose each character to kind of explain the um, ideas that you're trying to get across um, so I'm, I'm not sure if I've been the main guy who's, who's uh, defended the use of stereotypes in The Simpsons, um, um, but but I, I mean I have I have been asked questions about about how how uh, you know the ethics of using stereotypes in comedy, um, which I think is an, an interesting and complicated area. But with regards to caricatures, I didn't quite catch the last part of your question. So could you repeat that? Oh sure. With, with caricatures, does it, is it easier to use them to kind of pluck whatever character you want out to be able to hold up and say and ex be able to explain your philosophical ideas using a particular character that will probably meet the needs or at least the requirements of what you're trying to explain better or best or the complete opposite and at least allow you to get across your thoughts um, in a good way okay so why, why why do we use caricature so much um i think i think i, I guess that that's an artistic question, my first thought would be that, that caricatures uh, make things more interesting. Well, in I meant you specifically. Instance. Like with your, with your class, are you able to look at like the Aristotle's um, you know, virtues? Are you able to take uh, a guy like Homer and explain his virtues versus a guy like Mr. Burns? Does each one can kind of explain what you're trying to get across better? Like either they have all the virtues or they have none. Is it easier with caricatures because they can be fit into boxes a little bit easier? Yeah, so in, in the latest version of the course, which we've had around for a while, we, we don't actually look at virtue ethics um, in, in, in this version of the course. We, we just look at consequentialism and uh, deontology, and, and we, we, we use uh, uh, Homer and some other characters as case studies for illustrating those, those theories. But, but in general, I think uh, the, the caricatures in, in The Simpsons um, are very often moral caricatures. So the, the behavior is exaggerated and, uh, and uh, there's a moral component to, to that behavior very, very often. And so that does allow a great hook to introduce these uh, so sometimes quite dry questions about what the right thing to do is and, and how we're to settle debates about what the right thing to do is using characters who are sort of obviously doing something wrong to the point of it being humorous. Um, and, and there's loads and loads of examples of that in The Simpsons, as, as we know, and, that, and that's part of 
what I think makes it a, a useful tool for, for introducing um, the sometimes but not always uh, relatively dry questions that we get in ethics about what makes an action right or wrong and whether um, particular actions are right or wrong. Well, you know what, what I love about not only this course but some of the other ones that you do, and I love this idea, there's actually a whole philosophical, as I was looking into this, I had no idea that this book series existed, but there are, there's this guy named William Irwin who's basically written the philosophy of, uh, you know, pick your sitcom, pick your movie, uh, and he's gone into it. And what I love about that and what I love about the course that you do is I think taking pop culture references, something that's, ex- you know, exciting that people are already tuned into that they're, you know, extreme fans of. And then teaching these what can be very complex philosophical ideas and using those um, as examples, I think that that's the best way to teach because you already have an engaged audience. Do you find that to be the case when you're teaching this? I think linking philosophy to pop culture can be useful in certain circumstances. Um, The courses that I run that that are explicitly linked to pop culture are are open access courses. so anybody can take these courses, and they don't form part of any degree program. Um, they're they're just a, a way of widening participation and engaging the public with a, a subject philosophy that is often hidden away, unfortunately, in universities and is only accessible really to people who, who take a degree in it, um, which isn't most people, of course. Um, so I I think I think uh, linking philosophy or indeed any academic subjects to popular culture in the way that my course does and the way that um, the book series you refer to does, that there's now a rival book series to that, um, organized by by different people under a different publisher. And there have been other courses. I think there was a course at Berkeley that, that, that did a Simpsons and philosophy hmm. um, um, course. And I, the, 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 there are various articles. If, if you research this stuff, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, this sort of note has been struck a number of times in a number of places, um, so, and, and, and I, th- I, th- I think it can be useful. But, but I think it's really most useful when when you're trying to engage as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Um, I might not run a graduate course <laughs> uh, and you and explicitly link it into the Simpsons. Um, I might not even. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think um, I think once you get to graduate level, you shouldn't have to sugarcoat things with with pop culture. Um, I think I think we should just be able to, you know, I mean, once you're at graduate level, you're you're basically doing professional level work. Um, and so if you know if you're if you're training to be a doctor, a medical doctor, um, you shouldn't have to uh, learn medicine by having it dressed up in The Simpsons or. Game of Thrones or well, no, no, anything hold, else, right? I mean, and it's the same, I think, for philosophy or, or for anthropology or for mathematics or for anything else. Well, now, hold on a second, because I, I want to challenge you a little bit on that, because I, you know, I know graduate-level work is professional stuff, but, you know, in kind of what, what when, where philosophy kind of gets the, the bad rap is that, you know, it's these ivory tower thinkers who are elitists who, you know, this stuff's good, this stuff's bad, this is the proper way to think. And I think that even having that that kind of approach can be kind of um, off-putting for people who want to learn philosophy. I mean, I'm not saying if you're a medical doctor, you need to continue to practice medicine on the game of operation. But but I'm saying that like when when you human beings are stories, and and people who are thinking, these philosophers, even Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, they were using the stories around them, human nature, our, our pop culture. You know the good you know the good stories. There are lots of great writers. Um, great artists who capture the human existence in a story 
better than anything else could. And I think using those great stories as templates for philosophy are, in a sense, quasi real world examples of these hard to grasp philosophical elements brought to life. As a matter of fact, I think that sometimes using those types of examples in order to, to prove philosophy might be the best course of action instead of trying to learn at a graduate level these ideas that kind of exist in a vacuum. So the, the, the key question is how appropriate is the example for illustrating or, or establishing a certain philosophical point? That, that's the key question, and it's all about the philosophical point. That's what really matters. Um, and if you read professional philosophy, often very evocative examples will be used, but it will be the example with which, which the, the professional philosopher put in whatever argument that they're putting thinks will, will, will best support the point. Um, and, and when you're teaching, you face a similar kind of requirement. Right? If, if you're trying to get across a philosophical idea and you need to use an example um, or a story to illustrate that, you have to just pick the example or the story that best illustrates that idea. Sometimes you may find things in popular culture which will help. Um, sometimes you might not. Sometimes you might just have to invent things. That, and, that's, and that's often what professional philosophers have to do. They have to just make examples up because there's nothing out there that really fits the point that they're, or illustrates the point that they're trying to make. Um, and, and all that's fine. Um, and I think consistent with what you said, um, where, where, where I think I feel like I begin to, to, to need to draw a line is, is, is where you would think about designing an entire course covering a lot of philosophical ground and at every point in that course, whenever you were reaching for an example, whenever you were trying to illustrate something, you would only reach for examples or illustrations from a certain um, pop culture product, a certain TV show or movie or what have you. Um, and, and I think once you're doing that, it becomes a bit more artificial and, and you're beginning to move away from your central task, which is getting the philosophical point across, however that, that works. And, and you're beginning to, to sort of make compromises just to make it fit with, with the pop culture product. And, and, and once you've reached that stage, then, then I, think, I, think the, I, I think that's a mistake. Um, it always needs to be about the philosophy, ultimately. That, that's the point of this. Um, and and, and it, at, at, at the entry level, so when, 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 you're, when you're introducing people to philosophy for the first time, um, you, you don't need to worry so much about making that compromise um, because the philosophical ideas you're de dealing with are, are at the elementary level. Um, and so you have much more room for maneuver. And so you can much more easily link into to a specific pop culture product. And it works much better at that level. But the more advanced you get, the harder and harder that, that becomes. Um, I think the, the most advanced course I've ever come across which links um, philosophy into pop culture product throughout the course was, was a course that I, I heard about just, just verbally um, from, from a very famous philosopher who, who apparently taught an under, a relatively advanced in the USA undergraduate course in metaphysics, which, which was based entirely around Harry Potter. Um, and apparently that was successful. I'm not sure what, what year that was in, um, um, but I think it might have been the third year of a four-year undergraduate degree in the USA. Um, and I, I, I would sort of think that would be about, about as far as you could take this stuff um, without having to make compromises, which would begin to defeat the purpose of, of what you're trying to do, which is communicate the philosophical idea first and foremost. Well, you know, Einstein said, if you can't explain a concept to a three-year-old, then you don't understand it. 
uh, or maybe it was an eight-year-old. Anyways, single digits of age. Um, so I, I think that that kind of was true. Now, I didn't finish my philosophy degree. I took philosophy 101, so I can't challenge you on this point. Um, but I still stand firm um, with my belief that you can still use this at the upper levels of philosophy, even having no background to make such a claim. I'm still going to do it. Uh, so now let's get right into the meat of this, because I think w- what's really fun, I want to talk about some of these philosophical ideas that show up in The Simpsons. Um, and let's start with one. Cause I, in a couple interviews, you use this same example. And... Um, and it's an interesting example, and it got me kind of thinking about a couple of other things, because my mind naturally goes to psychology and sociology, uh, which there are elements in this episode, as well as philosophical ideas. And it's the one, it's season one, episode two, uh, where Bart basically cheats on a test uh, and then ends up getting put into a genius school. And and it's funny, because in, in the arguments you make, you say that he gets lost when they start talking about free will. Um, but in actuality, when you rewatch the episode, he's lost from the get-go. Um, but the conversation of free will is definitely interesting to be taking place in there. And the, 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 the kind of example that they use doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, because it says, humankind has freedom, but a freedom fraught with paradoxes. Freud says that childhood, sha- childhood shapes our subconscious mind, but this helps us think for ourselves. That seems like garbled gook. Is that really an argument for free will? No, not really. Okay, I, think, I didn't think I, so. I, I think I think that's the script writers of The Simpsons just trying to write something that sounded good to <laughs> their, their ear. Um, yeah, it, uh, it, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense on its face. No, okay, <laughs> good. Well, and I guess that goes to your point that this shouldn't be used at the graduate level. So um, destroy my argument. <laughs> uh, but it, so in that in in that episode, you know, there's there's um, are there any when we look at what, let's start here. What kind of stuff do you look at when you look at this? When you're looking at the Simpsons, um, you know, you talk about Aristotle's virtues. I did a whole bunch of research on that, so we have to talk about it at some point, even though you're not including it in your in your course. But what is the stuff that you go over and kind of introduce people to? Okay, so the when 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 the Simpsons course, which as you know, um, received a uh, uh, significant amount of media attention, when, when that when that media attention first hit the course was quite different from how it is now okay um in part because after that after the media success of the original course um other courses were launched on on the back of that linking uh philosophical questions into other pop culture products so there's now a whole range of pop culture courses involving game of thrones and star wars and doctor who and, and so on um and so one thing i did was that, that i partly cannibalized my original <laughs> simpsons course um, or at least cannibalize some of the topics in my original Simpsons course and move them into other courses. Mm, okay. So, for example, I, I don't discuss free will in the Simpsons course anymore because now that's the topic of, of, of my um, Star Wars course. Got it. So okay. The Star Wars course is all about free will just because it, it just fitted better there. So, right, the, right. The most, so the most recent iteration, uh, to be honest, of, my, of, of the Simpsons course is all about moral philosophy. And, and it really looks at sort of three questions. Um, it looks at um, some basic normative ethical theories, so theories which are supposed to explain what makes an action right or wrong. Um, and it looks at consequentialism, which is the view that, um, broadly speaking, an act is right or wrong um, in virtue of its consequences. Um, and then different consequentialists argue about um, which consequences might or might not matter. Um, and that's contrasted with uh, a view called deontology, which denies that an act is right or wrong in virtue of its consequences. Um, 
um, and says, um, broadly speaking, that acts are right or wrong in virtue of their intrinsic nature, just in virtue of the kind of act that, that it is. Um, and so we, we illustrate that in relation to, to The Simpsons, which, which I think is full of moral dilemmas and conundrums and illustrations of things being morally good or bad. Um, and then, and then um, we address, I think, one of the most interesting questions in moral philosophy, which is how do we make moral decisions at all? And um, what do we do when, when our moral judgments conflict? And there's some really interesting work, uh, very recent work, by a moral philosopher or a moral epistemologist um, at, at Harvard, a guy called Joshua Green, who, um, who studied um, what was going on in people's brains when they were presented with certain classic um, hypothetical moral cases. Um, and based on that evidence and, and some general theorizing, he came to the conclusion that there are basically two decision-making mechanisms in the human brain that get utilized when um, making moral judgments, one which is very, very roughly speaking, kind of intuitive and quick um, from the gut, you might say, and the other, again, very rough, roughly speaking, which is slow and deliberative and um, involves a conscious process of reasoning um, and that a lot of the moral disagreement that we get is really um, a disagreement that comes about as the result of these two systems conflicting and giving different results um, and, that, and that those that tend to use one system rather than the other will tend to prefer one moral theory rather than the other he also argued and again this is all you know up for grabs and controversial but it's, it's, it's an interesting position if nothing else um, and, and he basically argued that the sort of intuitive from the gut, um, as it were, um, decision-making mechanism, if people tend to prefer that mechanism or use that mechanism more, that, then, then they'll lean generally more towards making deontological judgments um, or judgments that fit with deontological theory. And those that prefer the more, the slower, more conscious reasoning-based way of coming to moral judgments will tend to lean towards consequentialism. Um, and, and, and that's, if true, that's fascinating because it then tees up the question of, well, which, which, um, which uh, decision-making mechanism is more reliable? And Green mm -hmm. had a story about which one he thought was two. But, but yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's a sort of really interesting question that people are debating right now in model epistemology. And we introduced that in, in the Simpsons course. Well, that, that's a great question because one of the things, there's this interesting argument um, for, as far as moral centers go on the show. Um, you know, Marge Simpson doesn't get a lot of screen time. She doesn't get a lot of, you know, she's kind of like the Tim Duncan, uh, if you watch American basketball. But, you know, she's not really flashy, but she's, you know, a solid character. And there's a good argument to be made that she is, in fact, the moral center of the show um, because she does a lot of things that are that are great. And, and I think she kind of uses both of the, you know, both of the methods that you just mentioned. Sometimes it's from the gut. But a lot of times it's she uses slow and she uses reason. That's really her her key element here. She really takes things in and thinks about them. And we didn't talk about Aristotle's virtues, but what what's kind of interesting about that whole theory is this belief, you know, in a sense it's it's finding the golden mean in between two extremes. And you know, with a lot of the virtuous characteristics you know, patience, temperance, all this stuff. She really kind of falls in the middle and she makes a lot of great decisions that are good for her family, that are good for the neighborhood, that are ultimately the best moral decisions. 
Um, how do you think that she kind of fits into what you talk about? Well, so um, you, you could ask um, whether um, Marge is is making moral judgments that are consequentialist or are deontological. Um, and I think you will find, if you look at the, the show, that, that she makes, like most ordinary people, she makes judgments which seem to go one way or the other. Um, well, what, what one of the, the interesting and, and, and difficult things about um, about making ethical judgments, particularly when you begin to reflect philosophically on this, is, is, is that our ethical decision-making is, is, quite frankly, a bit of a mess. And, and when I say are, I just mean human beings. Um, we we have we often have intuitions about what the right thing to do is that conflict with what we might reason is the right thing to do. Um, more more explicitly, um, we will often judge cases which seem on the surface to be um, similar kinds of cases very differently because of what might seem to be morally irrelevant differences. Um, here's here, here's here's one really interesting case. Are two interesting cases to illustrate this, and, and, and these are indeed uh, the, the cases that uh, Joshua Green looks at, or some of the cases he looks at. So, um, as a classic, I'm sure you've heard of it, a classic philosophical thought experiment, moral thought, thought experiment, where there's a runaway tram, and it's currently heading down a track towards five people who, for whatever reason, are tied to the track. And there, there's a bystander um, who has time to do one and only one thing. Well, Two things, either nothing at all, um, or um, they are next to some points and they can switch the points. Um, and they know, according to the, the, the specification of the case, that if they switch the points, then the tram will head down another track where there's just one person tied to the track. And, and the question is, well, should should the bystander, what, what's the morally correct thing to do here? Should the bystander do, do nothing or should they switch the points? Many people judge that, that uh, most people indeed, and, and they've done uh, wide-scale experiments with this, most people judge uh, that you should switch the tracks, that that's a morally correct thing to do. And that, that, that's interesting that there's a debate to be had there. But things get especially interesting when you compare it to a case which is supposed to be analogous in key respects, but in which people's judgments tend to go very differently. So it's similar in some ways. So again, there's a runaway tram. It's, run, it's heading down a track towards five people. Um, who, who, who will die if the tram hits them. Um, but in this case, there's a bridge over the tracks. And, and there's a bystander standing on the bridge behind a very large man. And the bystander knows that they have time to either do nothing or um, to push the large man onto the tracks, knowing that that will stop the tram. Um, but, and the large man will die and it will save the five people. Uh, and again, the question is, should the bystander push the large man? And, and in this second case, uh, often called the footbridge case, um, most people say, well, you shouldn't push the large man. Um, and that contrasts with, with what people judge in, in, in the former case, where, where, where the, the choice was whether to switch the points or not. And so that raises interesting questions. Either there's an important moral difference between the two cases, between the footbridge case and the case where, where you were just switching the points. Um, or there's not. If there's not a, a significant relevant moral difference between the two cases, then it looks like people's intuitions are are just sort of arbitrarily picking up on, on differences in between the two cases that, that's changing their moral judgment. Um, 
Or maybe, maybe there is some important moral difference between the two cases that people are pick, picking up on. And, and, and those are the kinds of, of, of debates people have in moral philosophy about exactly how confused our intuitions are. And, and a lo lots of people think that, that our intuitions are quite confused and, and how our intuitions differ between case, cases like this to demonstrate that. Well, I think, you know, uh, not to give a quick fix on that, but my immediate response would be if you're pushing the man with your hand, there is no separation between you and the killing of an individual, um, which would be considered less moral than hitting buttons that move a train. And the train is actually the thing that kills the person. Um, I mean, that's the thing that stands out in my mind immediately. Yeah, so I think I think that that's intuitively what people are picking up on. Um, the question is whether that is of moral relevance. So some would argue that spatial distance shouldn't make a moral difference. So if I kill you um, by shoving you into a pool of water, um, it shouldn't matter whether I do it by standing right next to you, whether I do it with a pole, whether I, um, I use an automated mechanism where, where I'm in a building 10 miles away and I push a button knowing that the automated mechanism will, will result in your death, right? That, that spatial distance shouldn't be morally relevant. Lots of people find that plausible. And so if, if you point to the footbridge case where you're having to push the large, or you, the option is to push the large man off, off the bridge, um, if, if, if all you've got is, um, is, well, you're much closer <laughs> uh, and you're having to maybe use sort of personal force to, push someone off the footbridge, you can't just point to that and say, well, that's a morally relevant difference. You also have to explain why that difference matters for morality, and you have to explain why why spatial distance would, would, would matter for whether something's right or wrong, or the, the degree to which something's right or wrong. And I think most would agree that it's at least not immediately obvious why spatial distance would matter for, for whether something is right, right or wrong, um, in, in the case of killing, at least. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, so how do you take, like, what is, you know, what is a great argument, a great discussion? How do you overlay The Simpsons on top of that? So there's, there's two general ways, I think, to integrate a, a pop culture product with a philosophy course. Way one is just to use an example to tee up a discussion. Um, and so uh, w one way that, that we, we do that in the Simpsons course is, is that we will look at a scene from the Simpsons in which a moral choice is being made. Um, so, for example, in, oh, I think it's season five, episode nine, that the last temptation of Homer, um, Homer is attracted to his uh, co-worker co Mindy, and they have this kind of flirtation, and then he faces this whole um, inner struggle about whether to... Uh, give in to temptation or whether to uh, stay stay with Marge. Um, and there's there's loads, loads of examples of, of these um, moral challenges, let's call them, in The Simpsons. So, so you, you can look at that, you can uh, watch the scene, um, and then that raises the question about, well, um, we have an intuition here about what the right thing to do is. Um, how do we know that that intuition is reliable? Well, look, here's some research <laughs> on um, how we may, I mean, this re research is, is, is open to debate, right? It, it, it's very recent and the discussion is ongoing, but there's at least some instant research which might suggest that we have these different mechanisms and these mechanisms might conflict and, and so on. And, and the, the discussion just, just takes off from there. 
Well, so let's. I mean, I think when people listen to this, they at least that I do. I want to hear some of the like concrete examples. So I know this doesn't exist in your course anymore, but but you've mentioned it in other things. We're gonna go back to the original iteration because I think this is this is what really struck me. This was the first thing that I really started looking into because I found it to be really interesting, and that is whether or not Homer is a virtuous person inside the show The Simpsons. And I believe you make the argument that he is correct. Well, so. Um... By Aristotle's criterion, I think it's pretty clear that he's not a virtuous person. But by Aristotle's criterion, I don't think hardly anybody's a virtuous person. Except um, Marge. Marge. Marge does fit the bill under his... Uh, well, I think, I think for, to be a virtuous person, according to Aristotle, you have to essentially never um, feel the urge to do something bad, even if you defeat that urge. Hmm. You have to have a kind of mental purity... Um, on, on Aristotle's view. Um, so somebody who, for example, let's, let's say you, you see a wallet lying on the ground stuffed full of money, and you think to yourself, and you look around and there's nobody there, and you think to yourself, just for a moment, um, oh, I could take this wallet, and no one would know. And, and, then, and, then, and then you think, oh no, that, that would be the wrong thing to do, I shouldn't do that. You pick up the wallet, you take it to the police station, you hand it in. Um, in that case, even though you've done... <laughs> "Quote unquote," the virtuous thing, uh, you haven't met the criteria for being a virtuous person, according to Aristotle, because you had the urge, even though you defeated the urge. Mm-hmm. Um, you you are a person who 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 isn't quite um, isn't quite virtuous, according to Aristotle. Now that his criterion is very demanding, um, that may or may not make his his uh, his story about what makes a virtuous person less plausible. Um, many people would say, like, if, if your story about what makes someone virtuous entails that basically nobody's virtuous, um, then there must be something wrong about your story. Sure, surely there are some virtuous people on this planet. Um, but certainly, Mar- I mean, Marge sometimes is tempted to do the wrong thing. All the characters in The Simpsons are. They're, they're in that sense, normal. Um, and indeed, I, I think it's hard, hard to think of, sort of any human being um, who has reached adulthood who has never been tempted to do the wrong thing and um, even when they've overcome that, that temptation and Aristotle would say well that's a failure of virtue well so now so when but you do make the argument under other theories that mm-hmm. he is virtuous mm-hmm. Homer I say he's a good I say I say he's a, he's a good person which is a somewhat different question from whether he's a virtuous sure person. sure I mean, I, you know whether whether Homer's a virtuous person will depend on what your theory of, of virtue is and that and that's really the, the sort of um, way way into the issue is to say, well, look, is, is Homer a virtuous person? Well, lo- looking at first glance, it, you know, you might be able to argue one, one way or the other. What could help us here? Well, a theory of virtue. And then you wheel in a theory of virtue. Um, um, and Aristotle's theory of virtue is relatively straightforward, um, at, at least in its basic elements, um, and so is, is quite, quite neat to introduce there. You want to ask whether Homer is a good person um, which is a more general question, I think, um, then you're really asking a question about, well, what makes someone good or bad? And, and, and then you're really into questions about whether, whether we should be consequentialists about what, 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 what makes uh, something good or bad or whether we should be in deontologists or, or, or something else. Well, so what, what's, your, what's your take on Homer then? I think he is a good person. I mean, I think, um, you know, he, he often does the right thing, even though he doesn't want to. Um, and, and I think, uh, according to common sense morality, at least, um, we generally say those people are good. 
Um, although although our, our, our judgments often um, are often inconsistent, um, and there are interesting cases which illustrate that. But generally, um, I would say you know there's lots of examples from The Simpsons where um, Homer tries to um, do the right thing um, and, and succeeds. Um, there are lots of examples of The Simpsons where, where Homer sort of sacrifices himself. Um, you know, think think about how much of a family man he is. Think th- think about how much he he sacrifices in going to that awful job, in that in that awful power plant with an awful boss, um, and he doesn't do it because he enjoys it. Um, he does it for his family. Um, and of course, there's also lots of examples in The Simpsons where Homer is 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 um, not morally perfect by any means. But even even his sort of even his sort of moral failings are very are very um, open-hearted, I think. And, and, and this is, I think, at, at the, the center of, of what makes Homer a good person, is, is that he, is, he, isn't, he isn't malicious. Um, he isn't the sort of person who would um, um, conspire to, you know, in, in a Machiavellian way to have something evil befall someone. If he doesn't like somebody, he, he finds it very hard to hide that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, has, he has this sort of really refreshing emotional honesty, um, he's quite childlike in his approach to the world, and, and sometimes that involves him being selfish, or um, silly, or short-sighted, um, uh, and doing the wrong thing. But it, it, it does come from a kind of childness, childishness within him, um, and so to that extent is 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 uh, forgivable, at least up to a point. Hmm. Um, and, and so, if, if if you look at the bad stuff he does in that light, and then if you look at all the good stuff he does. Um, then, then yeah, I think I think he he comes across quite quite well. But you know, Homer's done lots of things in The Simpsons, and and I, I don't think The Simpsons always presents a consistent picture of, of its characters. Um, <laughs> that's so true. there's definitely room for debate here. Yeah, no, that's very true. Who is your favorite Simpsons character? It's not a very original choice, but I think I think Homer is really is, is, is I think he's the funniest and the most enjoyable, and I think I think all the other characters. Well, I think I think he's a character you'd miss the most if he was subtracted from The Simpsons. The, the, this is the way I try to decide this question. I think, well, if I was to watch The Simpsons and someone was to be subtracted from it, who, who would I miss the most? I think I would miss Homer the most. What about outside of the main cast? What, which uh, which character outside of the main cast do you like? Chief Wiggum, does he count as outside the main cast? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, he's no, no, no. He's, he he's a good choice. No, He's great. I mean, he is, he is really... Um, <laughs> A, a really good caricature of, of you know, the um, uh, morally weak U.S. cop. And, yeah. And, 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 and Mr. Burns, I'm not sure if he's outside the main cast, but he, he's, he he's excellent as well. Outside um, of the nuclear family, when I say the main cast. So anyone who's okay. not one of the Simpsons. Yeah, so I think I think it would be a toss-up between Mr. Burns and, and Chief Wiggum. I'm a big Mayor Quimby fan, um, kind of for the same reasons that you say with Chief Wiggum. It's funny, there's this, there's this great... Um, you know, when you talk about, I was going to talk about hypocrisy, and it's funny when you when you look at Chief Wiggum and Mayor Quimby, uh, those are two people who really they're only they're really out. I mean, Chief Wiggum is incompetent, but his motivations are more kind of akin to making life as easy as possible, um, which will include taking bribes and everything like that. And, you know, to the same respect, Mayor Quimby's whole thrust in life is to just maintain the power that he has is, you know, his uh 
his political clout and and also to womanize. And I think those two are those two are my favorite characters <laughs> characters, and they are absolute caricatures of at least in the American system how things operate. Yeah, yeah they they are they are I think accurate for for a common kind of character that you find I think, and that, and, that, and that's what 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 makes them work. I think. Well, now let's look at something that I don't know if you go into, but I I feel like you can probably handle this this conversation um bart simpson has always been one of my favorites um he's roughly the same age as i am i've been following him since he was 10 years old um i I related to him at first but i was never an underachiever i didn't like that aspect of him but i love the scamp nature of bart simpson i've always thought he was funny by aristotle standards you know you could say that he is in fact a malicious person and not definitely not a virtuous person although he does tend to make the right decisions and as you mentioned with homer whether he's good or not is a whole nother conversation but on a totally different note what do you think about the idea that bart simpson could essentially be um at least from nietzsche's standpoint the um the ideal for nietzsche so you are speaking to someone who knows uh, very little about Nietzsche. Oh, um, come on. <laughs> so uh, come on. I, did, I, did, I did read a book on Nietzsche once um, a long time ago, and I probably still have it on my shelf somewhere. Um, so that, you know, one of the things that, that people are often disappointed of when they speak to uh, professional philosophers is, is, ha- is ha- how, how little many professional philosophers know about the history of philosophy. Um, particularly when certain figures in the history of philosophy fall on one side of, of divides within within Western philosophy, and, and and there are there are divides in Western philosophy um, to do with um, distinct schools of thought and, and patterns of influence. Um, and one of the big divides in Western philosophy, the biggest divide really in Western philosophy, is is between what's sometimes called analytic philosophy and. and uh, non-analytic philosophy and Nietzsche and I, I'm on the analytic side and Nietzsche is generally claimed by people who are on the non-analytic side. So um, that that sort of explains you know. So, so when I did my undergraduate degree and, and my, my graduate study, Nietzsche was not, was barely mentioned. Um, and um, he, he he's quite a big figure in in the sort of not non-analytic school and and in places like um, literary study and critical theory and, and stuff like that. He's 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 huge, of course. Um, but but in in the sort of philosophy that I do, analytic philosophy, he, he's considered at best a minor figure. Um, so I'm sorry that I can't I can't, I can't expound on uh, what Nietzsche would say about about Bart. Um, oh. but I mean, uh, I'm sorry. You're killing me here. You're you're a professional teaching this thing at the professional level. Um, although I would imagine that a graduate level course in uh, Nietzsche would have the the conclusion of that course would be that in fact Bart Simpson is the not, is not the nihilistic ideal, although he does claim to be. Um, what I love about Bart, you know, in kind of you know in broad terms, what Nietzsche talks about is this idea that um, that the world is constantly in flux and is chaos, and the people who are the most successful are the ones who can kind of embrace that chaos. Uh, and in a way he does, but you know, there's an interesting point that was made that Bart Simpson, he kind of defines himself as the opposite of authority. And so he doesn't exist as his own character. Like he doesn't exist in his own, uh, his motivations aren't his own really. Um, which I just thought was kind of interesting when you start looking at, cause people would look at him and think that like, oh, he is kind of a nihilist. He doesn't believe in anything, but he's not at all really. 
Um, and the absence of authority, he kind of withers. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to, to talk about. Um, well, so one other thing that's kind of funny about The Simpsons is this idea that, um, you know, whenever, whenever something happens in The Simpsons and a group has formed, you know, which essentially all the group, the, you know, we'll call it Spring, Springfield in and of itself is a character. Um, and there's lots of mob mentality. And I know this kind of borderlines on psychology, and I unfortunately always tip in that direction. But what do you think about Springfield, you know, as a character, the group of characters, um, and as it relates to when they get together in a group? What do you think the philosophy kind of goes through there when they, they, they kind of go for one thing, they go for another, they're kind of easily manipulated? Yeah, so um, philosophers have, have long studied the mob and uh, how, how, or the rabble, um, the rabble. How, <laughs> how easily influenced it is. I mean, this goes at least back to, to Plato, um, who, who gave a famous argument against uh, democracy being the best form of government. Um, he, he thought that democracy wasn't the best form of government, and, and his basic argument, and this is actually something else that we cover in, in the course, in the Simpsons course, um, is, is Plato's argument against democracy and whether it works. Um, and, and Plato's basic basic move is, is to say, well, look, um, um, the best form of government is, is the form of government which rules well, um, ruling well as a skill. And the skills required for ruling well are only possessed by some and not all people. Uh, democracy uh, will not select those who are best at ruling. Therefore, democracy is not the best form of government. And a key premise in that is, is his claim that democracy will not select those who are best at ruling. And his basic argument for that is, is well, look, there's lots of people who can uh, easily persuade the rabble to believe anything. Um, and they'll do so through nefarious means. And the, the rabble, the masses, the mob um, are, are too susceptible to the wrong kinds of influences. And so will not choose the people who are, who are best at ruling. And so democracy will not lead to the best government and therefore is, is not the best form of government. That, that's Plato's uh, classic interesting argument against democracy as the best form of government, um, which, which I think speaks somewhat to uh, the point that you're making about how in, in The Simpsons there are, there are many, many occasions in which um, the, 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 there's a kind of um, um, group madness almost that takes over at certain points. Um, um, and, and, and that seems to be a common feature of human groups, right? Um, look at riots or um, look at fads or fashions or look at moral panics. Um, all, of, all of these are real world examples of, of where groups of people can, can in some sense, uh, lose collectively grip on, on, on what, what reality is in a way that's quite damaging. Right. Well, the, every one of those things that you, every example you gave is something that happened on The Simpsons where the town goes bananas and will either burn the town down or completely, you know, turn it into a wasteland. Uh, it's very true. Well, you know, the interesting thing about, and this is just a slight little diversion here, but what I found interesting is, you know, I always grew up thinking democracy was this was great and that you everyone gets a voice and, you know, I went to for the for a separate um, project that I was doing. I was kind of looking at um, how group group leadership, and one of the kind of interesting concepts someone made this argument is that consensus is a much better way to rule, although much more difficult than democracy. And the main argument they gave, which was very simple, is that in in a democracy. If you have a if you have a, a vote that's cut really close, and you know 
broadly speaking, our past couple presidential elections, at least in the states, have been very close, you know, 49-51, 48-52. When something is that close, you know, in a democracy, all you need is 50%. When that happens, almost half of the other group are unhappy. And so you've really only pleased half of a group, whether it's a country, however you want to do democracy. And I found that to be really interesting um, as far as how, how, um, how to keep groups happy and how to elect the correct people. I don't know if that's the right answer, but I think Aristotle was onto something. And I bet that's not the first time you've heard that. So there's definitely uh, difficult questions to answer about, about whether democracy needs certain social conditions to be in place in order for it to thrive. And, and one common condition that gets discussed is whether, is whether uh, society needs to have a, have a certain degree of harmony before you can have a democratic government. That works. Um, if, if there are divisions, I say, of, of an ethnic or religious or, or other 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 kinds of divisions that are just too deep, such that if one one group loses an election, um, things will be so bad for them, or they believe that things will be so bad for them that it's just unacceptable. Then, then maybe in that circumstance, um, you just can't have a functioning democracy. Given those social conditions, that, I, th- I think I think lots of people w- would agree with that general point. Um, in terms of Plato's argument, I mean, the the, the, the standard ways to respond to Plato's argument um, are to either say is, is to either sort of accept the general approach that Plato's taking, which is a consequentialist one. So Plato's saying, look, let's look at the consequences of. Uh, different forms of government and see which form will have the best consequences. And he then judges that democracy isn't the one with the best consequences and therefore is not the best government. Um, and you can sort of ac- accept that way of setting things up and, and then argue about whether democracy really does have the best consequences. Um, another way to go though is to deny that we should look at, that we should evaluate systems of government um, entirely um, uh, based on their consequences and, and point to some sort of intrinsic value that democracy might have independent of its consequences and um, maybe there's just some 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 uh, ethical value in giving people a vote and giving people a choice and may- maybe there's just some inherent value in that whatever the consequences are and um, people sometimes point to the example of of south africa and 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 a common kind of statement that people made when apartheid was was overthrown um, and, and of course, there was lots of media attention when that happened. And when they had their first election and they interviewed lot, lots of people, a very common sentiment that was expressed was, was, was something along the lines of, well, look, you know, I, I, saw, I don't care, because everybody knew what, what the result would be. Right? It was sort of obvious that, um, uh, that, that, that the ANC would get elected. Um, and, and people said, you know, I, I, you know, it isn't really about what the outcome. It's just about the process. I just feel good now that I can go in there and I can, I can put, put my vote in and, 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 and I feel that that's really valuable to me. Um, and so maybe, maybe that, that's one at least argument for, for why, why democracy might, might be a good form of government. Maybe it doesn't always lead to the best rulers, but um, it, it at least encapsulates that sort of intrinsic value of giving people a, a choice. Mm-hmm. Now, that makes sense. I mean, you know, when, when you look at all this stuff, uh, you know, I love the fact that The Simpsons is the backdrop. What do you think that The Simpsons exemplifies from a philosophical standpoint um, better than anything else? I think The Simpsons uh, invites the viewer to think about what's valuable in life. Um, if, if, if The Simpsons has a philosophical point, it, it may not. Um, you know, some... 
some some works of art are just are just funny, um, or are just curious, or you know, some sometimes they don't have a deeper meaning. Um, people often argue in this way about the famous Oscar Wilde play, the importance of being earnest, um, which is just a kind of um, well, on on many readings, it's, it's it's just a comedy, right? There's no deeper meaning. It's it's just it's just funny, and 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 maybe maybe The Simpsons is is that too. But but if, if there is a sort of deeper point to The Simpsons, um, then I think I think it is about what it, it sort of invites viewers to, to ask and and maybe even answers the question of what is valuable, um, and. I think the answer given in The Simpsons, or, or, or at least a point that's been made more than once in The Simpsons, is, is that it is about human re- relationships, um, about family relationships, about friendships, about community. Um, um, and, and that's certainly at the core of The Simpsons. Um, and there's lots and lots of scenes in The Simpsons where, um, despite all the problems and despite all the mayhem, at the end of the day, there's still, there's still The Simpsons family. and um, they still love each other and care for each other ultimately, and and um, and that and that and that's I think an important and in some ways quite a philosophical point. Well, and and the great part and you, to that point, what what I love about it, and they make a joke about this, and they kind of point it out, is that at the end of every episode, they're kind of back at the beginning. You know, like nothing has really changed, and they've gone through this trial, but in the end, they you know they kind of always come back to their original set, which is equilibrium. You know, I think that there, there's an interesting point in that. Well, uh, Dr. John Donaldson, uh, I think that that's a great place to end it. How can people get in touch with you? How can they learn about you, learn about the school? And, and are any of these courses available online? Uh, yeah, so if, if, uh, if people just go to the University of Glasgow website um, and look for uh, University of Glasgow short courses, um, uh, they'll find a range of, of uh, open access philosophy courses offered. Two, two are available online. Uh, one is, is the Game of Thrones and philosophy course that, that's available online. Um, that, that launches in April 2019, but you can already sign up for it if you wish on the university website. And we offer another online course, Star Wars and philosophy. Um, and again, you can find that on the university website. What about you? Do you are you on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube? What do you do? Uh, yes, I'm I'm on all of those. Um, my my Twitter, my Instagram, um, my uh, I'm on Tumblr. Um, I am on various um, uh, academic websites like Phil People and ResearchGate and Academia.edu. So people can find me in all of those, and they're all public facing. Um, so people can all follow me there. Well, I'll have links to all this stuff on the website. I'll have links to your personal website, links to the Twitter account, so they don't have to go searching for everything. I'll make it easy for you. Uh, as I said, I love The Simpsons, and I'm really happy to have an opportunity to finally go back and look at all these great episodes and finally think, use my analytical mastermind moniker, really put it to good use. Uh, so I want to thank you for that. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, 
and Google Play. It's in all those locations, and you'll never miss an episode if you do that. You can also, if you like this episode, check out fascinatingnouns.com to learn more about the guest here and listen to previous episodes, check out upcoming episodes, and you can also follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies at FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com, where we take pop culture technologies and I take a team of experts, including rocket scientists, biologists, physicists, and tell you how to make those in real life. We talk about Frankenstein's monster, the T-1000, and even Everlasting Gobstoppers. You can check it out there. It's also on the same podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. And if you like those shows, you may like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to check that out and follow my newsletter. At the bottom of the page, you can sign up for it, and you'll learn all about this episode, upcoming episodes, and exclusive content. Thank you for listening. And of transmission.